So welcome everyone. Thank you for uh, for being here. Uh, my name is Michael Frad. I'm the Assistant Program Director at Drisha, and uh, very excited to welcome folks back for the next class of uh, Your Name Shall Be Great, the Avram Narrative with Rabbi David Silber. Uh, we have been working our way through. We uh, got part of the way through Parakyud Dalad chapter 14 last time, and we'll be continuing in there with some of the material related to the relationship between Abraham and Lot. So uh, with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Rabbi Silver and we can go ahead and get started. Okay, great. So actually we finished up chapter 13 last time where Abraham was commanded after Lot leaves to, in the words of the Torah, to walk through the land in its breath and width. So Abraham is essentially engaged, one might say in a symbolic possession of the land. His walking through the land prefigures a time when his descendants will actually possess the land. Avram does so. In the last verse of chapter 13, he uh, pitches his tent. He uh, dwells, he dwells in Elonei Mamre, which is Hebron, and there he builds an altar. So he's essentially outside of the detour to Egypt, He's been in three places. He enters at Shechem, he travels near Beit El, and now he's in Hebron. That's the end of chapter 13. Chapter 14, which is a very interesting chapter, it sounds like it, it feels different and sounds different from what we've been counted in the last two chapters. So let's begin with chapter 14. You have it on your screen. So the story, the chapter begins by saying, in the days of, and there was four kings, beginning with Amraphel, the king of Shinar, three additional kings, and they made war and they list five kings, beginning with the king of Sodom, his name is Bera, and the king of Amorah, Birsha, three additional kings. All of them, Chavru, joined together, came together in the valley of Sidim, which is Yam HaMelach, literally the salt sea, which we call the Dead Sea. So it's funny, the text, Vahibi May, is not a typical beginning of a chapter. We have it elsewhere, the Book of Ruth. Vahibi Meshvot HaShoftim, at the time of the judges, and the following story takes place. We have it in Megillat Esther. Vahibi Meachashverosh, in the days of Achashverosh, and we have the story of the Megillah. And here in chapter 14, Vahibi May, in the days of, and the list four kings. And interesting is that the first king mentioned is Amraphel, the king of Shinar. Now, Shinar, we have encountered earlier, earlier in the Torah in chapter 9, uh, chapter, uh, no, chapter 11, Tower of Babel, that the world comes together in Babel, which is Shinar, Be'eret Shinar. Uh, we know that Shinar is a place identified with Babel. It's identified with Nimrod. Um, the Torah says in chapter 10, that Nimrod was the first king of the Bible. His, his kingship begins in Shinar in Babel. So it is striking that this chapter begins in the days of, and it lists the kings, four kings, and the first king mentioned is the king of Shinar. And that's striking for a different reason. And the reason is the following, that in chapter 14, which speaks of the war between the four kings and the five kings, the names listed in the first two uh, verses. The um, main king of the four, the main protagonist in the chapter is not Amraphel. Amraphel is never mentioned again. The person, the king who is central in the rebellion of the five against the four is in fact Kedara Omer who's mentioned third in the list, Kedorah Omer Melech Elam, the king of Elam. So it is interesting 
And in, this all takes place in the time of, and the king mentioned first is Shinar. So the Torah, I would say, would suggest, wants us in reading the chapter to think about the story of Babel, to think about Shinar. So for whatever reason, maybe we'll touch upon this later, the Migdal Babel story is on our minds as we are about to read uh, this chapter. And there's gonna be a war in the chapter between the four kings and the five kings. They all join together, we're told in verse number three, and if we continue down, it says, They served Kedola Omer for 12 years. They rebelled in the 13th. The next verse, it says, verse number five, in the 14th year, Kedola Omer came. And the kings that were with him, the other three kings. And one expects at this point, presumably, that the Torah will tell us of the great battle that took place between these four kings and the five kings. After all, that's how the chapter begins. But to our surprise, actually, in the ensuing verses, it says absolutely nothing about the five kings fighting the four kings. You would expect that the four kings, the five rebelled against them, Maradu. Notice the word Maradu to rebel. That word Maradu is familiar to us because we had it earlier in the Torah. Nimrod, Nimrod, Nimrod means literally we shall rebel. So once again, there's a literary allusion to the story of Babel. But we, you, the reader expects, I think, that in the 14th year, Kedora Omer came with the, his armies and his allies and fought against the five kings. That's not what happens in the text. The war that takes place between these four kings is not a war against the five kings. It's a war against a different set of peoples, and we'll come to that in a, in, in, in a moment. Let's come to it now, in fact. Let's see the list of, of kings, of peoples, that the four kings defeat. So Vayakuit Rifaim Biashtirot Kanaim, Yet Hazuzim Baham, Yet Toimim Bishavetuyatayim. So in this verse, it mentions three peoples, beginning with Rifaim. Rifaim, we know of from, uh, from the Torah, from elsewhere, and from the Bible. Rifaim are giants. Mm. Giants. So they defeated the giants in Ashtirot Kanaim. Zuzim, mentioned elsewhere, are also very, very powerful people. Amim, Amos fear, I would say the dreadnoughts, Bishabet Kiryatayim. So we're talking over here, beginning with the Rifaim, with the giants. Uh, we're talking about extremely powerful peoples. At Hachori, in the next verse, Hachori Baharavam Seir, Adel Paran Asher Hamidbar, and defeated the Chori in the hill country of Seir, which is by the wilderness. Now let's read a little more and then we'll reflect upon these verses. And they, on their way back, they're traveling from north to south. On the way back, it mentions two other peoples, the field of Amalek, Today Amaleki, and also the Emori, who dwell in Chatzitzan Tamar. These are the list of nations that the four kings defeat. And actually, in thinking about this list of nations that the four kings defeat, they're on their way back now. Um, this list should sound familiar to some of us. Certain names on the list, because a similar list appears in the first chapter of the book of Devarim. The Amim, the Zuzim, the Chori, and also the Rifaim, because in the first chapter, actually two chapters, three chapters of Devarim, if you remember, <clears throat> it, Moshe speaking in the last year of his life, reflecting back on the desert journey, and they're coming to the border of the land. 
And God gives instruction there that certain nations you should not attack. You should not attack Seir, Esav, B'nai Esav. You should not attack um, uh, Ammon. You should not attack Moab. And the reason that the Torah gives, you should not attack these nations because God gave them their land. They are entitled to their land. That's what the Torah says. And the Torah brings proof that God gave them their land. What is the proof that God gave them their land? So let me read to you from the first chapter of, of Dvarim. Um, let's see. This would be in chapter, actually it's the second chapter. I take it back. Chapter two of Sefer Dvarim. Um, you're coming to the, starts with Esau. Chapter two, you're coming to the land of Esau, Seir. Um, do not start war with them, says the Torah. Go around them. Altiskarubam. You can purchase, um, keep, why not? Kirushali Esau, Natati, at Har Seir. I gave Esau Har Seir. Um, and the Torah uh, adduces proof that the um, that the land of Seir was given to Esau um, because the Torah says because prior to Esau um, because prior to living in Esau the 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 Chori uh, lived in the land of Esau. So therefore, what does that mean? It means if the Chori lived in the land of Esau, how could Esau possess this land? If the Chori were there, how could they possibly defeat them? It must be that God assisted them. Or for example, the next group of, of Moab. There it says, don't start war for them. This is in chapter two, verse number nine. This is very clear. Because I gave Lot the possession, their land. Before they were there, the Amim mentioned in our chapter were there. The Amim were there. Verse 11. Verse number 12. So Esau and Moab, it's their land. How do you know it's their land? Because before they were there, the Chori were in the land of Esau. The Rifaim, called the Emim, were in the land of, uh, of Moab. So therefore, it's impossible to defeat, to defeat them. So obviously, it must be that God assisted them in possessing their land. So therefore you can't touch their land. And what's interesting is that's chapter two. Later in chapter three, it talks about the first successful war of Israel in capturing the land of Canaan, which takes place on the other side of the Jordan, Abraham And they were attacked by two kings, two kings of Emory. And the Two kings are Sichon Melech Emori and Og Melech Habashan. That's mentioned also in the book of Bamidbar. But in Sefer Devarim, it talks about Og as being Og Melech Habashan Nishar Meyeta Harifaim. He's one of those who remain from the Rifaim. That is to say, the same way Moab and Esau, their, their lands were given to them by God as evidenced by the fact that the Amim, the Rifaim, the Chori were there before, uh, so Israel as well, uh, Israel, Israel, Israel as well. Uh, if, if we defeated Og, Og as one of the Rifaim, that's a demonstration that God gave us our land. In short, the list of names in our chapter defeated by the four kings is consonant with the list that we find in the beginning of Sefer Devarim. And in fact, when it comes to the next nation, which is Ammon, we also can't stop war with Ammon because with Nelot, Netatia, Yerusha, also in chapter one, uh, three of chapter two of Devarim, uh, verse number 19, Eretz Rifaim Techoshev Afi. Rifaim Yashbubarifanim, Ho'amim, Yikurahem Zamzumim. So they, they call them Zamzumim. So we have Esav, Amon, Moab, we have Amim, we have Rifaim, we have Chori, we have Zamzumim, 
And over here we have Zuzim in verse number five, Azuzim Baham, Eto Emim Bishave Kiryatayim. In short, what does the, the significance of the war, not against the five nobody kings, but against these peoples, what does it mean? It means that what the four kings have done essentially is to defeat the nations that dwell in the land of Canaan. Now, what nations dwell in the land of Canaan in Genesis chapter 14? We have those mentioned above, basically the giants. And now in verse number seven, on the way back home, they defeat two more peoples. Sidei Amaleki, the field of Amalek. I'll get to Amalek in a moment. And they defeat the Emori. Now the Amori, we know of the Amori as one of the seven Canaanite nations. In fact, typically when the Torah speaks about the land of these seven nations, sometimes there's six nations, usually it's seven nations, sometimes it's 10 nations, but the generic term for these nations usually is Canaan. Canaan is one of the nations, but the land is called Eretz Canaan or Canaani. We had it earlier. And often the land is called Eretz Canaan. Sometimes it's called the Emori, the land of the Emori. Here in our verse, it talks about the Emori. The Emori are interesting, actually. Sometimes they're representative of the peoples of Canaan. But we know from a verse in Treastar that it speaks of the Emori as being giants. Kigova Arazim Gavho. So it's interesting that the Amori specifically is singled out over here in the context of those who inhabit the land, who are giants. The Amori we think of as Canaanites, but there's also a sense in which they're giants. Sichon Melech Amori is also a giant. So what's interesting is in the list, they're essentially capturing, one might say, the, the people who possess the land, the ancients who possess the land, and included in this list is Amalek, which itself is very interesting because of course we know that Amalek is Asaph's grandson. So Amalek is not yet born. Amalek is mentioned in chapter 36 of Genesis as being the grandson of Asaph. So here, presumably, in my view, it's saying something else about Amalek leave out the question of Amalek being Esau's grandson, there's another element to Amalek. Amalek may be Esau's grandson, but there's a sense in the context of these verses that Amalek is a kind of primordial power. I have often connected it, and with good reason, to the story of the Nachash. The Nachash and Amalek are, are very, very parallel, actually. What we have over here is, in short, the four kings are symbolically defeating, actually, the peoples of Canaan. And there are two kinds of people that dwell in the land of Canaan. There are the giants. And they are the Emori, who may be giants as well. When we think of Emori, we think of the Canaanites. It's interesting, by the way, without getting into the depth of it, we remember the story of the spies or the scouts that Moshe sends to scout out the land preliminary, he hopes, to the conquest of the land by Midbar chapter 13, the Miraglim. And when they come back, they report about the peoples of the land. And essentially what they say is we can't defeat them. And whom did they single out? We went into the land, they said, a land which devours its inhabitants. And there we saw Hanafilim, we saw the Nephilim. Nephilim are mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, the giants. And in addition, they say, There are other Canaanites there, but there's the giants there. And the giants think of us as grasshoppers. We see ourselves as grasshoppers, and that's how they see us. In other words, the point of that chapter, among other things, and this is a very important point, is that the, those who possess the land are not just the Canaanites, but there's an, there are ancient possessors of the land. 
I would say the Nephilim, the giants mentioned in Genesis chapter six, who take by force, who take without consent, and they are God's enemy. So God has two enemies. God has the Canaanites, but, possess, but the land is also possessed by God's ancient antagonists. And what the four kings have done, essentially, is to defeat those that dwell in the land of Canaan, who are both Canaanites or Amorites on one hand. On the other hand, they are the giants, the Rephaim, the Nephilim, the Anakim, etc., etc. This is a very important point about this chapter. This is a chapter, may I just say, hate to say it, but I will, it's not understood by too many people. Even though they write a lot about it, don't actually understand it. So we're going to get to an understanding of chapter 14. It's a very important chapter. They're all important, in particular important chapter. This is what has happened so far. So the four kings have not come to quash the five kings. There are some commentaries who are very bothered by this. What happened to the rebellion of the five kings? So they suggest, among other things, maybe these are allies of the five kings. But actually, it's certainly possible. That's not the focus of the chapter at all. Focus is not about the five kings because the five kings are five nobodies. The four kings are four powerful kings, as we shall see shortly. Now let's continue our story and I'll stop and take some comments or questions. Verse number seven, by Yitzhak, Melech Sedom, Melech Amora, Melech Adma, Melech Sloyim, Melech Bela Hitzoa. So these five kings, starting with the king of Sedom and Amora and the others, and they engaged them in war. So the five attacks the four. And now the Torah repeats in the next verse, whom did they attack? Then the Torah adds, the four against the five. Now let's pause for a moment and reflect on this verse, the four against the five. I've often asked in my classes, let me ask you a question. Who has the advantage in the battle? Do the four have the advantage or do the five have the advantage? And usually, I didn't take a census of this account, but for the most part, the answer is, well, the five have the advantage. I say, why do the five have the advantage? Well, because five is bigger than four. Now, when you when you reflect upon that answer, which is the answer usually given, of course, it's a ridiculous answer. It's foolish. But it's a foolish answer. It's a stupid answer. But the Torah has set us up. Because the Torah says four against five. It's four against five. Why is it foolish? Because the five are five little nobodies dwelling around the Dead Sea. The four are four giants. And not just because they defeat all these powerful nations but because that's how the chapter begins. And it came to pass in the days of the king of Shinar. It came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, because Ahasuerus in the Megillah is king of the world. It came to pass in the time of the judges, the corrected judges, that makes sense. It came to pass in the time of Shinar, the time of Amraphel, the time of Nimrod, that makes sense. It came to pass in the time of Alexander the Great, makes sense. It came to pass in the time of some little mayor someplace or other, makes no sense. So therefore we know, and we know from the name, Shinar, the world, the world gathered once in Babel. The whole world gathered there, Elam, big. Goyim sounds big, nations. So the four against the five, the question is, why does the Torah say four against the five? And I would suggest the following. There is a critique over here of the four and the five. It's actually interesting that before we called the verse said, they all joined together, chavru. Rechaber is to join together, a chaver is a friend. And the, the last verses of the previous chapter tell us about Abraham being told by God after Lot leaves, you keep going. There's a covenant between us. Where does Avram go and build his altar? Hebron. Hebron, place of joining. So Avram joins up with God covenantally in Hebron. 
the four kings and the five kings who will do battle have gathered, have joined together. Because in a certain sense, the five and the four are similar. In a funny way, it's five against four, says the Torah. What does that mean? It means that from the perspective of the kings, it's five against four. There are no other people over here. These are not kings who are thinking about their uh, obligation to serve their people. They're thinking about one person, which is themselves. So in a funny way, it's five against four. And here we have a critique of kingship. And it takes us back to the first king, to Nimrod, to Babel. That's all negative. Migdal Babel is about human beings thinking of themselves potentially as ascending the heavens, of, of equaling God. So there is a critique in this chapter, and a powerful critique about kingship with the five and the four, and we'll get to that later. But the point is, it would appear, now let's get back to our verses, then I'll stop, take some comments or questions. So the five attack the four. After all, they, were, they, out, they outnumber them, they're five against four. And now we have the so-called war, that's how the chapter began. The war, the great war, of the five rebel kings against the four. Now here's how the Torah describes this war. Be'emek ha-sidim, the valley of Sidim, Be'arot, Be'arot, Chemar, was dotted with bitumen pits. That's another link to the story of Migdal Babel. Ha-Chemar ha-Yolahem Rachomer, that's how we're gonna build their tower, with Chemar. Vayanusu melech Sedom v'amorah v'yipru shama. The king of Sodom and Amora ran and they fell there. The Anisharim Heranasu, the remaining fled to the mountains. So they fell. Here they fell into the pits. The term to fall is often used to fall in battle, we say in English, and we have it in the Bible as well. But here in this non war, because how could there be a war? They simply fall into the pits. The remainder run away. So the four kings took. They took the possessions, they took the food, and they walked. They're walking home. They continue, oh, there's some food here to take, some possessions, let's take it. Next verse, they took loaves in his possessions. Avram's nephew, and they walked. And Lot at this point was dwelling in Sodom. In chapter 13, it said he pitched his tent unto Sodom, but apparently he dwells in Sodom. Now let's stop here for one moment and I'll take the comments or questions. And that is, what kind of war is this? Answer, there is no war. There can't be a war between these four unbelievably powerful nations who defeat the giants and these five nobodies. And in fact, there is no war. The five instantly attack the four. It's not clear that the four even know they're being attacked. It's a mosquito on an elephant. So they, they come and run out, they fall there, and the Torah plays the word to fall in battle. They fall into the pits, into Emek Hasidim. Remember, Sidim is playing off Sidom. They fell into the pits of Sidim, which is called Yam HaMelach in the beginning of the chapter. Melach is salt, Melach is king. So it plays, it's playing, Torah's having a good time over here. And they, they're walking home. So they take the Rechush, they, there is no actual war over here. There is a war, an important war of the four kings against the giants. That's true. But this war is a non-war. Amongst the possessions they take and the people they take is Lot. Lot had settled in Sodom, and that's the background for Abraham's intervention, assistance, entrance into the battle. And what the chapter, of course, is actually about would not be about the five nobodies and the four kings. But at the center of this chapter, this is a very important point, is Avram's battle against the four kings. Now, before we continue, I will stop here and take any comments or questions. And then we'll continue with this chapter. Probably won't finish it this week, but we'll starting here. Anybody has comments or questions? Please speak up. It seems to me that maybe that possibly um, vayiplu is a uh, is 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 meaning to say that actually the the uh, the five kings fall, have fall into the category of the nephilim, which 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 uh, which warring against the nephilim was the project of the four kings. 
that's an actually a very interesting thought. I hadn't thought about that. Vayipru playing off Mifilim in the in the broader context of Rifaim. That's a very interesting observation. Thank you for that observation. That is interesting. Uh, could have to think more about that, which doesn't contradict what I said. No, not at all. But it's an additional literary effect. This chapter has many, many interesting, among other things, literary effects, which we'll get to. Its chapter is constructed in a quite ingenious way. Of course, beyond all the ingenuity and the cleverness, which we appreciate, is a very profound point about chapter 14. Chapter 14, everything's important. Chapter 14, when you read it, sounds like a less important, if that can be said, chapter, but that's not true. Chapter 14 is a chapter of enormous significance to the storyline of the Torah. And the rabbinic tradition understood this to the end. We'll get to this later on. Anybody else have any comments? Thank you for that comment. Interesting. Anybody uh, else? A quick, quick. Uh, I mean, I, I noticed that it was, uh, uh, as you were saying this, that, uh, that they seem to be doing God's work, the uh, the four kings, uh, particularly against Amalek and so on, the Canaanim. Uh, and I'm just wondering, th these are not supposed to be such, uh, you know, Babel is a sort of negative uh, thing. So uh, I, uh, I, it seems a little odd that they're- no, I didn't say they're doing God's work. I never suggested I, I, that. No, that's not what I said. I know, I'm I said saying, something else. I said I had, I had a different thought in mind. It's not that they're doing God's work. I'll, I'll answer your question by sort of jumping ahead to what I am saying. I didn't spell it out. What I'm suggesting is that the point of chapter 14 is that when Avram defeats the four kings, what I'm saying is that what the four kings have done for their own selfish purposes, they just attack because they can attack because they're powerful. No, they're not. They, God is the last thing on their mind. But my point is they having essentially defeated the peoples of Canaan, subjugated the peoples of Canaan, that when Avram defeats them, which he will do in the chapter. Somehow he is symbolically conquering the land. That's my point. At the story of chapter 14, what it's about and the great significance of it, understood by the rabbinic tradition. And we'll, it will become crystal clear when we look at this chapter, crystal clear. And that is what the point of chapter 14 is, Abraham is actually going to symbolically possess through war, possess the land of of, uh, of uh, Canaan. He has, in a certain sense, symbolically possesses it by walking through the land. And he will also symbolically possess it by purchasing the gravesite of, of Sarah, Maratha Machpelah. Just as, for example, later on in this book, in chapters 33 and 34, Yaakov will escape from Esau, come back home, purchase a space near Shechem at the end of chapter 33, and then his sons, will capture Shechem in a sense, defeat Shechem, which becomes a kind of precursor for the conquest of the land. So in the case of Yaakov, there's a war of Shechem and there's a purchase of Shechem. In the case of Abraham, there's a war and a purchase as well. The war is Abraham's war against the four kings. And the reason the Torah goes into so much detail about whom the four kings have defeated is to make the point that that list of nations they defeat is exactly the list of nations who dwell in the land of Canaan, especially the giants. That's a very important point. And if we have time, I will demonstrate how this point plays, plays, uh, plays out in other parts of the Bible as well. That's my point. I did not suggest that the four kings have anything good in mind. It's the farthest thing from, from Amraphel and these characters. No, the four kings and the five are all the same. That's my point, which is no good, which is true of most kings in the Torah. They're no damn good. President. There's an exception. There is an exception. We'll see. There's an exception to the rule, but that's an exception. Okay, anybody else? Silver? Yes. Uh, you know, the Posuk Avram Yashav Beretz Knaan, Velot Yashav Berea Kikar, Vayehalat Dom. Yes. I, I asked myself last time, why does it say Vayehalat Dom? But now, it looks to me that Vayahalat um, Dom uh, suggests that Area Kikar are out of Eretz Knan, but the, uh, how you say, the Gvul is Sdom. So Sdom is like the extreme point of Eretz Knan before you right. go out of the land. 
Right. That's it's, a good point. We raised this point uh, essentially last time and maybe a couple of weeks ago also. It's not clear about Saddam. You're, you're touching on a very important point. It's, a, it's what we call kind of liminal space. It's hard to know whether Saddam is inside or outside. Your point is very well taken. Mm -hmm. It would appear from the previous chapter that maybe Saddam is outside. Avram dwells in the little hand of Canaan and Lot dwells are at Kikar. So it's really unclear, I would say. But it's true that in chapter 13, the Torah contrasts Avram being in Canaan with these other places. And now in chapter 14, Lot is actually in Saddam, which is why he gets taken. Uyoshev Bistolom is the reason he had settled in Saddam. And let me make one other point about Saddam uh, in the chapter, which is there are five kings, five of them, five against four. But then when it describes the war, it separates out two of the kings from the other three. It specifically mentions the king of Saddam and Amora who fall into the pits. The rest of them run away. And actually, so, so now from the five, there's a focus on two, Saddam and Amora. Um, and elsewhere, it typically talks about Sodom and Amora. Um, it's also interesting that Sodom and Amora, the king of Sodom and the king of Amora, the names are very striking. There's Bera and there's Birsha. So we take away the Bet, you have Reshin Ayin, which means wickedness, and Bet Resh Ayin, which is Ra. So Resha and Ra, the two kings. So these are wicked kings. And as the story proceeds through chapter 14, the focus becomes daft on, on, uh, on uh, Sodom. It's the king of Sodom who's going to come out to meet Abraham at the end of the chapter. So there's a movement from five to two to one. And the story takes place in Emek Hasidim, which is a further play on the word Sodom. So Sodom is very, very central over here as being maybe the main protagonist of the five, the main representative of the five. But my point is the four and the five, they're really all the same. Whether you're the king of big nations or small nations, at the end of the day, it's all about the four and the five themselves. And we'll see this in the chapter. Uh, as the chapter proceeds, how the Torah emphasizes that these kings, it's about the four and the five, as opposed to Avram. Avram is represented completely differently. So let's pick up the story now in verse number uh, 13. And we'll go as far as we can get today. The, the polite is a, is a one who flees, a refugee, a survivor. Um, Polat is one who was saved. So the polite, it's interesting, ha polite, mm -hmm. with the definite article, hey. So that's why the Medrash says, who is the polite, says the Medrash? Og. Og. Of course, we don't take that literally, but. It, of course, is making a point. And the point that it's making is exactly the point that I made 15 minutes ago. The, the Medrash wants us to connect the story of the conquest of the land and God's role in the conquest as evidenced by the defeating of the giants. And who is the giant that Israel defeats that represents the fact that God is with us? It's the Og. Mm -hmm. It's explicit in the Torah. He's the, he's, the, he's the remaining of the Rifaim, of the giants. We have time in the future, I'll talk more about Rifaim and the role that Rifaim play in the Bible. Very interesting. And he spoke to Avram the Ivri. Now, what does it mean? Why here does the Torah call him Avram Ha'ivri? Interesting. Can they translate this translation, Sephariah, Abram the Hebrew? Avram ha'ivri. Ivri has two meanings, both of which are operative in this verse. Aver means the other side. So Avram from the other side could mean, and we know he came from, he came from the other side. As it says in the book of Yoshua, we say this in the Haggadah, Be'ever hanahar Yoshua avotechem me'olam. Terech avi Avram vavi nachar. In the Haggadah, the verse in Yoshua. We say in the Haggadah. Our ancestors came from the other side. What it means over here would presumably is, he told Avram from the other side, the war of the, of the five kings against the four kings is not Avram's problem. He's from a different place. Why would he get involved in such a war? 
he has no reason to get involved in such a war except that his load has been captured and he has decided to go out to try to save his, his relative load, despite the fact that they have parted ways and load is in Saddam, but he feels a kinship and a responsibility. So that's one meaning of the word Ivri. But the word Ivri has another meaning because in our study of the Torah, we can never forget the, uh, the uh, genealogical tables, the genealogies, they're very important. And we know that in between the story of Nimrod and that business over there, and prior to Migdal Bavel, we have, we, I'm sorry, right after Migdal Bavel, we have the descendants of Shem. And when you go down the generations of Shem, at the end of chapter 11, his great-grandson is Aver. In fact, the expression shame and Aver is a popular expression in the Midrash, the Beit Midrash of shame and Aver. So Avram is the Ivri. He descends from Aver. What does that mean, descends from Aver? He descends from shame. So the point of the story is he descends from shame, and shame is the son of Noah, whom Noah blessed. What did Noah say to shame? He cannot ever lomo. Shame will subjugate Canaan. Avram is the 10th generation for Noah. His mission was to carry out the blessing of Noah, to capture the land of Canaan. So over here, the Torah reminds us that Avram is a descendant of shame. And it probably mentions Aver specifically because I believe Aver is the fourth generation. So four generations is an, is an interesting number. Actually, we have in the next chapter. So Aver then has two meanings. It means somebody who comes from a different place who ordinarily you would think would not want to get involved. That's number one, but he does get involved. But number two, and importantly for the chapter is, the chapter keeps reminding us of that earlier chapter of the Tower of Babel, of the genealogies, of shame, of the blessing of shame. So he's Avram HaIvri. Avram was living amongst the Amori. He dwells with Eshko and Maner and Mamre, they're Amorites. They are Avram's allies. So Avram is living with people, Emori, who are also attacked, by the way. Emori were one of the nations mentioned earlier. And, but he's in, a, he's in a secure place. In other words, he's in a place, the others have left the land, and Avram is in a place of, of friends. They're called Barei Brit Avram. So the, he doesn't have a reason per se to get involved in a, in, 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 a, in a war. Nonetheless, in the very next verse, Vayishma Avram Avram hears that Achiv, his brother, in this case his relative, has been taken captive. And he springs into action. What does he do? <laughs> he musters. He empties out. He takes with him chanichav. A chanich, nowadays we call a chanich kind of a pupil or protege. Chanoch, chanukata bias is a dedication. The people that are one might say dedicated to him, perhaps his pupils, his disciples, those also born in his house, which could be additional people. They're described as Chanichav, Yuridei Beito. And here the Torah gives us a number, 318. In Gematria, it's actually Eliezer. I've always wondered about this number, 318. It's bothered me for 40 years what it actually signifies, and I don't have a good answer. I constantly think about this number 318. It's a chapter where numbers matter. So I suspect that the number 318 has some significance. And I've been racking my brains for 40 years to try to figure it out. And the answer is, I do not know. The gematria is interesting, that's Eliezer. And maybe there's more to gematria than I, than, than, than I suspect. In any event, it gives us the specific number. <clears throat> He went in pursuit as far as Don. We know of Don in the Bible later as being a northern border. 
So let's, let's assume he goes up north. In the context, he's traveling up north. He deploys against them, literally divides up his people. Himself, and now we have Avadav. So we have Chanichav, Yulidei Beito. We have who? We have Avadav, his servants. Vayakem, he defeats the four kings. And he, he chases them to a place called Chova. Small, we know we counted small earlier. It means north. He travels to the north of Damascus. It's a long journey. Now, I'm not going to ask the question. At this point in time, he's minimally 75 years old, much older. He may be well into his 80s or more. How could he travel this tremendous journey with these people, untrained army, and defeat these four powerful kings? It's not a question the Torah wants us to ask. But that's the story that we're given. I mean, it does try to answer it in a certain way. He does all this. So he restores all the possessions. He brings back Lot and Lot's possessions. He brings back the women. He brings back the rest of the people. And the king of Sodom comes out to greet him. Let me read a little bit more here. King of Sodom comes out to greet him. After he defeated Kadola Omer, we'll get to this later on. Then Malki Tzedek appears in verse number 19, eight, verse 18 and 19. Uh, and Avram talks to Malki Tzedek. And then the king of Sodom resumes his conversation. He says, you can take the possessions, give me the people. And Avram says to him, I'm not taking anything from you. And in verse 24, the last verse, and we'll go back. No, he says, I'm not taking from myself. However, the Na'arim, the young one, the young ones, the Anashim, Asher Hachuiti, so he refers to the people with him as Na'arim and Anashim, they deserve their portion. So it's interesting the description here of the Torah of the battle. There's Avram, there's who? There's Chanichim, that's two. There's um, Yulidei Beito is three. Um, Avadav. Avadav is four. Narim is five. Anashim is six. Anashim. Anashim is six. Aner Eshkolum Amre, I would say that's nine. I mention this for the following reason. It struck me this morning, actually, that in this chapter, the, the king of Sodom comes out to greet Avram. And then before we hear what the king of Sodom has to say, um, he comes out in verse 17 and suddenly the Torah stops with the king of Sodom and we have the conversation with Malkitzedek. Malkitzedek comes to greet him, brings out bread and wine and he gives up two blessings. We'll get to this. And um, Avram, we are told, and he gave him a tithe, a tenth of everything. He gives Malkitzedek a master. So let me just pre preliminarily, I want to talk about this giving of the master. First of all, I presume that it means that Avram gives Malkitzedek a master. That's the translation over here. I think it's correct. He gives him a tenth. And the point of giving him a tenth is that what he's saying in effect is because Malkitzedek said, blesses the God who has, who has assisted you. Now, I just pointed out that in terms of Avram and his allies who, who are successful in the war, there are nine, right? There's himself, Anar Eshkel and Mamre, and five other descriptions of Chalichim, Yulidei Beito, Avadim, Narim, and Anashim. That's nine. There's actually a tenth who assisted him. So he gives him the Maser, representing the fact that he acknowledges that victory was only possible. Yes, there's this human beings who engage, of course, but there's also divine assistance. That's the missing tenth. So he gave him a tithe. I thought about that this morning as a possible understanding of the Maser Mikol, but of course, there's something else about the Maser Mikol. 
and before I get to the key part of the story, which is Malkitzedek. Malkitzedek is central to the story of supreme significance, Malkitzedek. Um, let me make a different point about Malkitzedek. Malkitzedek, this mysterious character appears in verse number 18 after Avram's victory and he's the king. Malkitzedek is both a priest, he's a Kohen Yon. he is a priest of the high God, but he's also a king. He's Melech Shalem, the king of Salem, the king of Shalem. He comes to greet Avram after the victory. We'll talk more about Malkitzedek soon. But I want to make a different point about Malkitzedek, which is Malkitzedek is Malkitzedek, which is the virtuous or the righteous king. So the chapter 14, among other things, is about kingship. There are 10 kings in the chapter, it turns out, aren't there? Torah makes that point, five against four. Five and four is nine. And we know what the five are and the four are. It's all about themselves. Which is the worst thing you can say about a leader when it's about just himself. But um, there's one king who's not that way, just one. And that's the Malkitzedek. Maybe the Torah is making a point about kingship in general. One out of 10 is good. And of course, Avram recognizes the virtue of Malkitzedek because he gives them a 10th. Because he is the 10th. He's the one out of 10 in chapter 14. So that's the tithe. Now I wanted to get to, uh, at least to begin with what is central to this story. The claim that I make is that what's central to chapter 14 and what is significant is that what Avram has done in chapter 14 is to possess the land of Canaan in a symbolic way. He doesn't actually possess it. But he defeats the kings who have defeated the peoples that dwell in Canaan, both the Canaanites, the Amori, but also the Rephaim, Emim, Zuzim, etc. Anakim, Nephilim. So Machitzedek comes to greet him. Machitzedek is God's representative on earth, who Kohen Re'el Elyon. And what he does is he gives two blessings. It's interesting, by the way, Rashi quotes a Medrash. Who is Machitzedek? The Medrash always likes to give us more information about mysterious characters. Who is Machitzedek? Who is this righteous king? Rashi says, uh, three or four words, <clears throat> who, and three more words, shame ben Noach, says Rashi, Malkitzedek is to be identified with shame. So of course, that fits perfectly with what I've been suggesting, because the point of the story is that shame is the one who is given the blessing by Noach, you shall subdue Canaan. And what Avram has just done effectively is to capture the land of Canaan. So Malkitzedek, recognizing what Avram has done, comes out to bless. And he's a Kohen. Kohanim give blessings. The role of the priest is to bless. It's the priest Malkitzedek in chapter 14 of Genesis who blesses. It's, for example, Yitro, the Kohen of Midian, who in chapter 18, after Israel leaves Egypt, comes, comes and blesses Israel and blesses God. That was the priestly blessing of Yitro after the battle, after the victory against Mitzrayim. And now we have Malkitzedek, the priest blessing after the victory against the four kings, in effect, the victory against the peoples of Canaan, the, the giants. And what is the nature of the blessing? So actually, when we look at this, uh, these two verses, We'll begin now, and next time we meet, I want to pick this up. Verse number 19. Blessed is Avram to the high God, El Elyon. Kone is typically translated as creator of heaven and earth. So what does that mean? Avram, you are blessed to God, the creator of Shamayim Va'aretz. So I, make, I want to make the following suggestion as to what this means. The Torah begins with two creation narratives. The first creation narrative is, 
And the second creation narrative begins with This is the story of the creation of heaven and earth when they were created Bihibaram. That's I think verse four of chapter two. That's the introduction after Vayichu to the second creation narrative. The first creation narrative is about creation of heaven and earth. And the second creation narrative is within the creation of heaven and earth, there's another creation, which is a specific place, a chosen place that the Torah calls the Garden of Eden. Some people think these two creation narratives, which of course are very different, are somehow contradictory, but they're not actually contradictory, not in the Torah's eyes. One is a, one might say, a, a, a fulfillment of the other. The second creation narrative is different, no question about it, but it's a fulfillment of the first. That's how the Torah begins in chapter two. Interesting is the Medrash, Behibaram points out Avraham, the letters of Abraham's name. And what it's saying is actually pointed to something which is the Pshat of the Chumash. What Malkitzedek is saying to Avraham is, Avraham, in your possession of the sacred space, which we call the alternative to the Garden of Eden, you have fulfilled God's purpose in creation. The purpose of creation, even of Genesis 1, was actually Genesis 2 and 3. That's a fulfillment of God's purpose. So you are blessed to God because you are carrying out God's will. You are doing God's work in this world. And that therefore you are blessed because you are fulfilling God's work in this world. And the next verse, and blessed is the high God, who delivered your enemies into your hands. What does that mean? Blessed is God who, who, who has enabled you to do your work. Because after all, you old man, how could you defeat these powerful kings if not without God's help? Hashem again, Sarecha, who delivered your foes into your hand. So there are two blessings. One blessing talks about Avram's ability to fulfill Avram's mission in this world, which is to do God's work. Who, which God? The God who, of, of creation, Kone Shemayim Va'aretz, the creator, the high God, and blessed is the God, Hashem Migain Sarecha Biyadecha. Now these two verses, and I'll stop with this thought next time maybe to pick this up. I'm thinking of giving a course sometime in the future about these two verses, I mean a course. And the course is about, other people have written about this and spoken about it, but I think I have a good deal to say about this. And that is the biblical roots of prayer. Because when you read these two verses, it is obvious, and it's been obvious to many people, though they typically don't, in my view, understand what it signifies, that these two verses contain within them three terms that are central to our basic prayer. One is Eloyon, one is Kone Shemayim Va'aretz, or in the version of the Ashkenazic, or the, not Ashkenazic, the Babylonian version, Kone Hakol, and Migain Sarecha Biyadecha Magain Avraham. That these two verses form the backbone, the basis for the very first blessing of our, of our, of our core prayer, which is before the Amidra, the Shmona Esrei. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that, they, that the rabbis chose these two verses for our prayers. Because what, this, what the Amid is about, they are suggesting, is the following. I stand in prayer before God and saying, I want to do your work in this world. Everybody has a different task in this world. No one knows what the other guy's task is. Everybody tries to figure out what their task is, my task. So I stand before God and say, God, I want to do your work in this world. And after I say that, that's how I begin my Shemona Esrei, I turn to the middle section and I say, God, I want to do your work in this world, but in order to do your work in this world, I need your help. I need the ability to make some good decisions. I need to be recognized that I'm not hopelessly stained with sin. 
I need good health. I need to make a living. I need to live in a, in a, in a secure place. Those are the intermediate uh, requests in what we call the Shmona Asra, the Bakoshot. But the purpose actually, those Bakoshot is the God who has enabled you to do your work. That's our request in the middle of the Shmona Asra. But the Shmona Asra begins with verse number 19, which is Baruch Avram you have fulfilled God's purpose. You have symbolically in conquering the symbolically the land of Canaan, the sacred space. You are f- fulfilling the purpose of the God described both in the first verse of the Bible and in the second, beginning to the second creation narrative. This is the story of Shemayim Aretz in its being created. Says the Medrash in a terrific insight, the Hibaram Avraham. Avraham is the one who secures the sacred space. We'll continue next time with this. That's what I was thinking of teaching in the future the biblical roots of prayer, beginning with a good understanding of the Bible. Of course, they understand the Bible. If you want to see the Bible as the foundation of prayer, it's helpful to understand the Bible. I'll stop at this point. If any comments or questions, I'm happy to try to answer them. On the schedule, we don't meet next week because it's Thanksgiving weekend. If there's a change, people will be notified. Right now, there is no class next week, and then we'll resume in two weeks. If there's any change, you'll be notified. Uh, anybody, anybody have any comments or questions? Yeah, possi- possibly. 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 and Magen Avraham are both alluding to Gan. And, and so this is actually exactly the second Garden of Eden. Well, I'm not sure I would go there. But by the way, Elohim M- 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 Magenloch is the beginning of chapter 15. The next chapter begins with, do not be afraid, Elohim Magenloch. We will see that chapter, and the rabbis understood this, that chapter 15, which is the covenant, covenants in chapter 15 is based on chapter 14. I, I wanna talk more about this next time. Anybody else have anything to say? Yes. Uh- the, the word Kaine Shemayim Oretz, when Eve names her son uh, the same root Kain, uh, yes. there is also an indication right, uh, of the future that it's not only uh, you know, a whole series, not only of Rome, but everything that comes afterwards. True. Kaniti et Hashem, I have created, or perhaps made actually. There's the a word Kaneh means to create. Um, uh, yeah, so that probably also means Kaneh there. Uh, yeah, so just please, just, re- just repeat the comment. I'm not understanding the point you're making. So repeat the comment you're saying? Yes, well, just, uh, okay. I don't just, that just as, just as uh, Eve makes a reference to her partnership with God in continuing the world, uh, in giving birth, there is also an allusion here to that, that even though this is a wrong, and, uh, but there is also a continuity. I see what you're saying, yes, right. Yeah, that's an interesting way, yeah. It's an interesting formulation to see, to see the human being as sort of joining up with God that jointly, that we need, which is basically a, a, a very nice formulation of what I was saying, which is, we always need God's help in all things because we're all limited and we need the inspiration and insight and whatever. And that's our first request is to know what the right thing to do is. It's not easy to know. And that the uh, human uh, place, human endeavor is to somehow find ways to partner up with God. Sometimes God takes the first step. Sometimes we take the first step because see ourselves in in partnership in trying together to, to build something for the future. That's a nice formulation. I like that very much. Mm-hmm. We will see next time. Uh, by the way, as I mentioned, the the Yerushalmi, the, the the language of the Yerushalmi, <coughs> we have Kone Hakol, the Creator of all. The Yerushalmi had Kone Shemayim Va'aretz. And Friday night, when we uh, have the text of the Amida, the short text of the Amida after the Shemona Esri, Friday night, right. that's based on the on the language of, of the of the of the Talmud Yerushalmi. There it's 
You have those three terms one after the other, right? You have three terms, actually, one after the next. You have and then it says Magain of Vot. Because the Yerushalmi's text was not Magain Abraham, as we have, it was Magain of Vot. But at least the three terms come together in the repetition of the Amida on Friday night. And you see straight up that, and this is what I, let me just end with the following observation, which is the, the text of our prayer service is made up by the, uh, by, by the uh, rabbis, by the teachers, by the rabbis. They make it up, whoever it was. Actually, it doesn't matter. And they choose a particular story in the Torah to, on which to build our prayers. And what is striking is that the primary text used to construct our most important prayer, which is the first blessing of the Amidah, it comes from Malkitzedek. Apart from the fact that he's a non-Jew, which is interesting, that's a, that's a separate thing. He's not Jewish. He's, he's calling it El Elyon. Doesn't even say Hashem. Avram says Hashem later. We'll get to it. Not Malkitzedek. But you see something. They understood that chapter 14 is something about this statement in chapter 14 that is so central, that is so unbelievably important. When they, when they constructed the prayers for Yom Kippur, it's the golden calf that, that's the central text of Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah, Akedah Yitzchak. We understand those stories are of supreme significance. They're in the top 10, maybe the top five. But Malki Tzedek, they understood the Malki Tzedek story of chapter 14 as being a central, central text for our, for our tradition. That's what's very interesting. And I think it teaches us something about studying Torah that got to keep our eyes open. It's all important, but in, but in the text, some stories stand out. And they saw this story as standing out. And when we continue next time, we'll see why they saw the story as standing out. Because I think they had a very deep insight into the significance of chapter 14. So I'll stop at this point again. We don't meet next week at this point. If there's a change in the schedule, everybody will be notified. If you have any other questions, you can send me an email, dsoberatrisha.org. I'm happy to respond if I can. So have a good day. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. And uh, thank you for joining. Thanks That's a lot. Thank you very much. Culture.